From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An emergency physician who was on duty the night of the Aurora Theater shooting. Dr. Camilla Sasson is now on the front lines of the pandemic. She calls them both mass casualty events. It's just that one seems to have no immediate end in sight. How her shift the night of the shooting propelled her years later to care for COVID patients in New York City. Then we remember Frank Macon, one of Colorado's famed Tuskegee Airmen. In his 90s, he remained a visionary. He didn't let the fact that he was aging slow him down or or, or get in the way of doing something new and, and different. And doggone it if Frank Macon, at 90 plus, was making better landings than I was. Giving Tuesday is just one day, one day out of the whole year when people come together to support causes they care about. I'm Ari Shapiro, and on this one special day, we are asking you to support this NPR station. Whether it's your first time or you already give and want to go the extra mile, thank you. Today is Giving Tuesday. Support independent media in your community. Donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The night of the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012, emergency physician Dr. Camilla Sasson was on duty. More than 20 victims came through the CU hospital that night, and Dr. Sasson noticed something. Colleagues came out of the woodwork to help treat patients. It was as if they magically appeared while she was drowning. She wanted to pay it forward. When the pandemic hit, she got the chance. Back in April, she traveled to New York during the city's surge. Since then, she's crisscrossed the country, helping communities prepare for and cope with COVID-19. Dr. Sasson, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. In many ways, tragedies can't be compared. But I wonder how fighting a pandemic is similar to a night like the Aurora Theater shooting. You know, I think the thing that was different about the Aurora Theater shooting is that everything kind of started at, at about 12.30 in the morning. And then by 5 o'clock in the morning, it was eerily silent in the emergency department. And I remember my colleagues very clearly coming in at 7.01 and saying, hey, how was your night? Um, and it was it was five, six, and tenth hours of just absolute craziness with people coming out of the woodworks, like we had said, just helping out. But what is different about the COVID-19 pandemic is that this in many ways is a sustained mass casualty event. Hmm. Um, you know, and usually with mass casualty events, it's it's one and done. You're, you're in five hours, everything is over. But here we are nine, 10 months in, and it's that same level of anxiety, that same level of angst, that same level of panic, that when is the next wave going to show up? And so I think that's just what makes this so different. And that's also, I think, for, for a lot of healthcare providers, what makes it so tiring, because you just don't know when there's an end in sight. Right. It just hasn't stopped. When you went to New York in April, you felt comfortable leaving Colorado because things were pretty stable with the virus here. But you came back into town last week to see patients and you were alarmed by what you saw. How so? Yeah, it was interesting because I I actually felt comfortable leaving in April, leaving my colleagues in in Colorado, because truly our volumes had gone down tremendously. There were very few COVID patients coming in. There was actually very few patients coming in at all. Um, And I remember thinking, okay, Colorado, way to go. Good work. You know, things are settled here. I I, I should go help where I'm needed. Um, And I worked last week, and I think it was just so striking to me because, um, you know, I saw 20, 30 patients a day with COVID. 
19, which is so different than what I saw even in April, kind of in that height of, you know, our last, our first wave, if you will, in Colorado. And it just frightened me because there's so many of these patients not only were sick, but they were talking about their families and their friends that were sick. And then a lot of these folks had to go into the hospital and hospital spaces are really tight right now. And so you had to kind of wonder a little bit, like, you know, what happened? (laughs) Where did we go wrong? Because definitely feeling the impacts of it in the emergency department. And you mentioned that when you left, you felt comfortable because you felt like Colorado had done a good job. Did it feel at that point like it was going to be this sustained event or did you feel like it was more or less how things could play out in the long term? You know, it was interesting because I happened to be in um, in France at the very start of the epidemic when it hit um, Italy. And I remember talking to my husband very clearly as we were on a, on a train in France saying, oh, my gosh, life as we know it is going to be never going to be the same again. I said, this is 18 months, two years of our lives that we're going to be dealing with these ups and downs of things opening, things closing, the waves of, of, of you know, kind of surges that we're going to see. And, and he turned to me, like any other husband said, and said, are you really sure? Uh, it seems like you're being a little dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> so I I do want to say I have I've brought that up to him many times since um, to let him know that, you know, as he says, I was right about three or four weeks later when everything shut down. But, you know, I think nobody really knew what to expect. And I think even as healthcare providers, I think we all kind of thought, hey, look, we'll get through it. We've gotten through really bad flu seasons. We've gotten through really bad, you know, um, uh, RSV seasons with kids. But I don't think any of us really had any idea of just how difficult it was going to be and just how long of a journey. You know, that mass casualty event, you know, the only thing that gets you through to the other side is that, you know, there's an end at sight. And we're in this marathon and we're sprinting right now. And the finish line keeps moving down the road. <laughs> right. You can't see it anymore. I think know? so many of us have had that bargaining where we feel like just one more month, just one more month. How do you yeah. maintain momentum, keeping your energy and focus up with the pandemic, unlike the Aurora Theater shooting, where it just feels like it won't let up? And you're seeing so many patients back to back and even um, just for so long. You know, I think the thing that makes me hopeful is that I see that there are countries that have done really, really well in getting their big surges under control. So if we look to New Zealand, if we look to Australia, if we look to parts of Asia, um, you know, with the right measures in place, and even in Colorado um, early on, with the right measures in place, we were able to get the virus under control. Um, We were able to to go back to testing and contact tracing and to really be able to, to follow out those people that were sick. And I think if we can get to that point again, I think that's the that's for me at least is the light at the end of this tunnel right now that we're in, um, knowing that if we can kind of get things back to a little bit less intense, a little less crazy, so if people can stay at home, if they can not do their small gatherings for the holidays, if they can wear a mask, we can do this all consistently for the next six to eight weeks, then we can get this under control. Our hospital systems won't be overwhelmed and we can kind of go back to a little bit of a reset again and hopefully start catching up. Are you worried about these weeks following Thanksgiving and going into Christmas? Yes, terribly, terribly worried. I will say that. Um, you know, I was actually flying back um, on on Friday, the Friday before Thanksgiving, and I remember I was in two different airplanes, and both of them were packed full of people, um, and the airports were bustling. And I just remember thinking, like having having this insane sense of dread, just thinking to myself. Um, you know, oh my gosh, what in the world is going to happen? Like there's nothing good will happen in the next two to four weeks from all of these people traveling from from place to place. And so I think, you know, for, um, for me, that's been really the, the big difference, if you will. Um, and, and just knowing that, you know, there's a lot of states where even the states that I was practicing in over the last, you know, few months where people are, are 
kind of saying, uh, eh, whatever, I'll get it. It's okay. You know, it's not a big deal or I'll, you know, I'm not going to cancel Thanksgiving. Well, I can tell you as a, as a, as an ER doc, I've worked many, many Thanksgivings and many, many Christmases. Um, and so I just kind of hope that people will, will kind of take that into, into account too, when they choose to make or not make their holiday plans. Not just doctors fatigued, people are too. Let's talk about those states where you've been practicing. Pandemic has turned you into a traveler. You live in Lakewood and have come back frequently to be with your family, but you've hopscotched the country to help communities prepare for and fight COVID-19. That includes work with the Indian Health Service in Montana and the Dakotas. A major focus for you early on or is early detection. Why is that so important with the novel coronavirus? You know, it's 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 something that I've realized being out and about all over the country is that, you know, as doctors and even as public health people, what we've said is, hey, don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Stay at home if you're sick and only come to the hospital if you're really, really sick or you get much worse. Um, and we say, oh, or if you're short of breath. And we don't quantify for people what that actually means. And I think, you know, for the, the folks that come in early that we can see who, who need to be there if they're truly short of breath, we can give them medications to help kind of stop that hyperimmune response that can can spiral out of control. We can give them supplemental oxygen. We can make sure that they're not going to get worse. And if we can get to them early, we have a lot of tools that are at our, at, on our tool belt in terms of how to help them. Now, if we go to the other side where people wait too late or they say, oh, they try to say, oh, I'm, I'm okay, I'm just going to tough it out at home, I'm going to tough it out at home, what we find is that they're so severely ill, it's really, really hard to help somebody who's about to go on the ventilator. And when you go on the ventilator, for example, that means your mortality, your risk of death is going to go up tremendously. And so if we can get to that point where we can help quantify what it means to be worse, quantify what it means to be short of breath, and, and that's been probably our biggest public health intervention that we've done in all of these states is just helping the community understand what that means. One of the ways that you've helped quantify is you've taught frontline healthcare workers the alphabet test. Tell me what that is. <laughs> yes, it's very, very high tech. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think some of the things that people don't remember or don't realize about COVID is that so much about COVID is going back to the basics of medicine. And that's what I've realized in the last 10 months. It's not about fancy treatments or fancy drugs or fancy things at home. It's really about doing simple things really well. And so for us, what we've spent a lot of time in the community and with our healthcare providers teaching them is, hey, look, if somebody, um, if somebody uh, can't, does a, a bedside walk test, meaning if they're walking, at their bed, in their room for one minute, and then they have to sing their ABCs. If they can't finish that one-minute walk test or if they can't finish singing their ABCs, that probably means that they need to be seen by somebody. Super simple, super easy. We actually, whenever somebody gets um, tested for COVID and they have comes back positive, we tell them to do that test three times a day at home. We tell them to sing their ABCs, and if they get to the point that they can't, then that's when we need to either go in there and intervene or we need them to come to see us. And so we've been teaching our contact tracers, our public health folks, our tribal um, communities, doing public education awareness campaigns, and then most importantly, reminding our healthcare providers, we're in the community as well, right? So you can do that phone call to grandma and say, hey, grandma, you know, you're, how are you doing? I want you to do the simple walk test with me while I'm listening to you sing, listening to you on the phone singing your ABCs. And I can't tell you how many patients we've actually diagnosed with severe respiratory distress who didn't even realize it until they did that simple thing at home. It's, it's something that's being used all over the UK and in England as part of their screening. Um, we haven't done it as broadly here. And I think we have this really amazing opportunity to do something super simple. You don't need to buy anything. And I'll even say if you do it right now at, your, at home, walk right now for one minute as you're listening and then sing your ABCs. That's your baseline. 
And um, if you get to a point when you've got COVID that you can't do that, then that means you need to come see us. I love that it involves even teaching the community to teach other people in the community. This pandemic, Absolutely. it's highlighted inequities that already existed in healthcare and the broader economy. Indigenous folks are three times more likely to die of COVID-19 than the general population. How did that play into your decision to work in Indian country? You know, it was um, probably the number one reason I wanted to go. Um, you know, I think as a, so I have, I have a PhD in health health um, policy and research, and I've done a lot of work in health disparities, even in Colorado, looking at disparities that we have in terms of survival from cardiac arrest and who gets CPR and who doesn't. Um, I work for the Heart Association, and we do a lot of training in communities uh, of color and, and really trying to sort of just increase that baseline awareness. And I think what I realized from those past experiences is that you can take that, I can take that knowledge and I can take that to Indian country and I can work within the framework that they have, which is established between the, the tribal, uh, between the tribe and the hospital system. And we can make a, a really amazing community-based response to COVID. And, and to me, that's been the most gratifying thing of, of doing this work all over the country is just seeing people come together, doing simple things correctly and seeing the community participate in their health, in their wellness. And we've had some really amazing results just from even the, the, the short amount of time that we spent in these communities where people have been doing better in their hospital systems because those hospitals are ready to take care of them. They're not transferring out as much because there's no beds, quite honestly, anywhere else in the state. And so they have to take care of those patients. And then at the end of the day, we're diagnosing them earlier. So they're coming in and they're not as sick. Um, and those simple things, I think, have made huge impacts in those communities and I'm hoping can be a model for the rest of the country as we move forward. And when we think about filling beds, we talk a lot about people's time in the emergency department and the ICU in particular. But you're seeing firsthand how much long-term care some COVID patients require, including young patients. What are you seeing in those patients? You know, it wasn't until COVID, I think, that I had a real appreciation for just how destructive of a virus this really is in terms of what it does to, to people. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I think we always think of, oh, it's only going to affect the folks that are unhealthy or the folks that are older. And I can't tell you, I have very clearly taken care of for weeks on end, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, parents, um, you know, college students who literally four weeks ago were running outside, running a mile, running, you know, 5Ks, running around with their kids. And they come in and see us and, and they get admitted for their COVID. And COVID actually destroys their lungs so much that they're discharged home on oxygen, or they can't even necessarily do any of the things that they used to do at home. And so, the, the, you know, there, there's this concept of long haulers, but, you know, I think most people don't realize that at the end of the day, that can be your, that can be you, that could be you 30, when you were 30 years old, running a 5k, and then two weeks later, you get COVID. And six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks later, we're still seeing these, these same people on oxygen at home. That's not normal. And that's no, nothing I've ever seen in my career. No other virus, no other disease process have I ever seen that has done so much dis destruction on people who are truly otherwise healthy. Rose, your question, what is it like to see someone walk out of the hospital after they've had a heart bout with COVID? Um, you know, so it's funny because I think as an ER doc, I've always kind of been, you know, sort of you do your, your you know, one hour to 10 hours, let's say, with a patient, right? Um, and in the last nine months, I think I've become, um, you know, much more of a hospitalist, an intensivist, meaning that I spend a lot more time with these patients. And so you become the only person, literally, that they see every day. 
um, they, they don't, they wouldn't recognize me on the street, right? Because I'm always wearing a mask or two masks and my goggles and my gown and everything. Um, and so after, you know, a few weeks of taking care of these patients or even a few, like six weeks, I've had a patient who, who I took care of personally for six weeks. Um, when they get to walk out and they're walking back to their to their family and they're going back to their homes, it's just this, um, still brings tears to my eyes right now. It's just, it's such an emotional feeling because, you know, that it's such a lonely thing to be um, to have COVID in the hospital, and as in, as their doctor, as their nurse, you might be the only person that they see for days, and that you you take a lot on because of that. I just want to thank you so much for sharing an experience that many of us haven't gotten to see. Thanks. So. It's, it's very personal. In case you can't tell, <laughs> I think a lot of um, folks think of us as you know we're doctors, we're nurses, we're techs. We've been doing this forever. Um, we're environmental services staff who are amazing, by the way. I just want to put that out there to you. Yeah. Um, and I think this this is different. Um, and I just really, really hope from all of the people out there who are, who are going to work every single day trying to keep you healthy, that, um, yeah. you know, take care of you when you need us, that um, you'll, you'll help us by doing the simple things right, wearing a mask, staying at home, um, mm-hmm. maybe not. Going to your Christmas gathering this year. We're going to have to wrap there. I just want to thank you so much. Dr. Camilla Sasson is of Lakewood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now's the time to get your front row seat to a CPR tradition, the Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza. I'm Ryan Warner. Join me and Avery Lill December 9th from the comfort of your home for music, conversation, and laughter. Our big event is virtual this year so that we spread joy and not virus, attend a special screening, and get a CPR cookie cutter. Sponsored by First Western Trust. Tickets at CPR.org slash holiday. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Frank Macon was one of the last original Tuskegee Airmen. The group was made up of the first black military aviators in the U.S. Armed Forces. They flew in World War II. Macon died a little over a week ago in Colorado Springs. He was 97 years old. Here he is in his own words. I was born in 1923. When I was in grade school, if I heard an airplane go over, which was very rare, I was running out of school trying to get out to see it, you know. I wanted to be a pilot. Of course, the the military forces were um, segregated in those days. The Tuskegee Airmen is basically started out to be sort of an experiment because there had been so many stories about colored people or black people that didn't have the uh, mentality to do anything that had any technical uh, implications. The Tuskegee Airmen proved them wrong. Today we remember Frank Macon and the significance of the Tuskegee Airmen with Mark Dickerson. He's a retired Air Force colonel, and he's also the president of the local chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. He lives in Colorado Springs. Thanks for being with us, Colonel Dickerson. Thanks for having me, Avery. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. How did you meet Frank Macon? Uh, well, as it turns out, um, my last assignment in the Air Force was here in Colorado Springs. I had been flying the vast majority of my career, and uh, that this was a non-flying job. So I wanted to stay involved in aviation, and uh, I, I did a couple things to do that. And one of them was to get involved with the Soaring Club out at Meadow Lake Airport. Uh, well, as it turns out, Frank was a member of that Soaring Club. And in fact, I found out much later that Frank was one of the several founding individuals who started Meadow Lake Airport. 
But the bottom line is that at that time, I just met Frank. He was a neat guy uh, and, and, and flew gliders, and, and we had a good time. And that's uh, how we initially met back in the, uh, the mid-'90s. Okay, for the non-aviators among us, what is a soaring club? Uh, the Soaring Club is a place where much of us who liked to go soaring use these um, engineless airplanes to, to catch updrafts and, and, and fly. Uh, it's, it, and it's right here in the Colorado Springs area. Colorado is a good place to soar. There are plenty of good updrafts here off the hills and, and, and the plains in this area. And so you can stay up quite a while. And, and so that's what uh, both of us enjoyed doing. It sounds so peaceful to be able to soar without all the airplane engine noises. What a neat way to have met Frank. Tell me about your favorite memories of him. Oh golly, um, Frank was just a uh, just a fun uh, gentleman. Enjoyed just uh, flying with him and talking with him. He had, you know, I was I, I was aware that he'd been around a while, but uh, he didn't share very much uh, of his background uh, initially. He was just another guy that that, that went soaring. Um, after I found out a little bit more about him, I had a chance to uh, to talk some some of the things. I mean, you know, you asked him about the airplanes that he flew. And it made me jealous, basically, because, you know, I'm, I, of course, I've had a chance to fly a lot of more modern aircraft, fighter aircraft and what have you. But some of the aircraft that, that he flew, an old Stearman and, and the Piper Cubs and, and the PT-6 Texan and, and what have you, kind of made me jealous listening to those stories. Uh, and, and he was a humorous guy. I remember one time somebody asked him um, what the horsepower was on the Piper Cub that he used to fly back in the day. And he said, well, it depended how tight you wound the rubber band. He was just a funny guy. <laughs> well, going way back, because he did end up sharing a lot of memories with you. Macon struggled as a student in school. He had dyslexia, and that really shaped his early experiences. He had to repeat second grade. But he had an aptitude for mechanics and building things. What did he tell you about how that affected him growing up? You know, we didn't necessarily share directly about the impact of the dyslexia, in part because uh, he didn't make a big deal about that. But it was very obvious early on that this was a creative individual that liked to try new things. Uh, in fact, I recall, I think there are still two or three drones at his house <laughs> that he used to try flying around. But um, as I got to know him, his whole mechanical aptitude became very obvious because he had a lot of items around his house that he had created. Uh, and uh, that he had his own airplane, one of the things that I was jealous of, that he did a lot of his own work on. So going back to that mechanical aptitude, he wanted to fly planes from an early age. He tried to enlist in the military when he was actually underage, but he got caught. He did eventually enlist in the U.S. Army Air Corps and became a Tuskegee Airman in 1943. What did he share with you about joining up and about his life at that time? Well, uh, some of the things that he shared were basically uh, mainly about his interest in aviation. This is probably because he knew I was also a pilot and had an interest in aviation. And so he shared aviator stories, the kind of things that pilots like to talk about. Yeah, he did uh, wind up damaging his eardrums. Uh, basically near the end of his flight training program because he was out, you know, um, basically dogfighting with uh, other uh, students at times when he shouldn't have been and on a day that he really shouldn't have been flying at all because he had a severe head cold and it wound up making it difficult to clear his ears properly uh, with all the climbs and descents. Many of us have run into this on um, commercial airline flights. So uh, he wound up uh, bursting both eardrums and caused him to uh, have to go into um, recovery for an extended period of time. So everybody else in his class graduated, uh, and uh, and he was kind of left behind. Well, 
As we heard from Macon himself, he was a part of the Tuskegee Airmen, and that broke barriers as the first black pilots in the military. They became highly sought-after group of pilots because they were so effective at protecting bomber planes from attack. Tell me more about the group's reputation during the war. Of course, uh, as the war began, uh, and even before, the whole the Tuskegee experience was a bit of an experiment by the War Department, is what they called it at the time, because in mid to late 30s, Hitler's army and Luftwaffe became very obvious that this was going to be a challenging foe because they uh, had a lot of great equipment. They were modernizing more rapidly than the rest of the Europeans. And so it became obvious, even in the United States, that if we were to get into this, we were going to need a lot more pilots. So even early on in the late 30s, early 40s, before the start of the war, they were setting up uh, programs in order to uh, bring in more pilots. And because of the obvious need for a lot, an experiment was put together to determine whether African-Americans had the uh, wherewithal, uh, mental capacity to uh, be fighter pilots, to be involved in in, in aviation and, and maintain the aircraft. So uh, the bottom line is it was started as an experiment to find out if African-Americans could cut the mustard. And as it turns out, the folks that were allowed to graduate, because they made it kind of difficult for many of these young men to graduate, because there were a lot of folks that did not want the experiment to succeed. So they made it very difficult. What they didn't realize they were doing necessarily was they were making those that did graduate the best of the best because you had to be really good to graduate as an African-American at the time, whereas you just had to be good for everybody else. This became a kind of elite force. Yes, ma'am, a, a, a little bit. So the, the, some of the um, attempts to keep them from, from graduating or reduce the number that graduated kind of backfired, and they wound up getting out there with excellent skills. Not only that, they had leadership that demanded that they do their best to protect the bombers and not try and uh, aggrandize themselves by trying to become aces by chasing aircraft that were not a threat to the bombers. You yourself are a member of the Colorado-based Tuskegee Airmen chapter. You're too young to have been a part of that original group that flew in World War II. What does it mean to you to be a part of the Tuskegee Airmen today? Well, uh I'm a part of the Tuskegee Airmen today because I finally came to to fully appreciate. I knew during my Air Force career that these guys had come before and had opened some doors for me that made my career possible. I had a lot of fun in the service, did a lot of interesting things, but I never fully appreciated all that these guys had gone through until after I retired and uh, basically came into contact with folks like Frank and and some of the other original Tuskegee Airmen and uh, said, you know what? I need to get involved in doing what Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated does, which is a work to keep that legacy alive and let folks like yourself uh, become more aware of those things that these gentlemen were involved in. And B, to encourage young people to let them know that they too can be excellent in what they do, just like these guys who were excellent despite the fact that they were facing major challenges. And As we've said many times, the Tuskegee Airmen, they're part of breaking barriers. What barriers would you like to see broken today? Well, you know, uh, first I'm going to say that I had a great Air Force career and I had a a chance to do uh, a a lot of things. However, as I looked around myself during the majority of my Air Force career, the the things that I was doing were things that not many African-Americans were doing. I found myself pretty uh, pretty lonesome as an African-American in some of the areas that I was working. I would love to see 
opportunities made available from a young age to African-Americans to get the kind of training, education, and experiences that they need to continue uh, moving forward at numbers that are representative of their numbers in our nation, as opposed to uh, just kind of now and then like folks like myself and Frank. That is something that Frank Macon was also passionate about, encouraging youth, speaking with them, especially those who struggled with traditional schooling the way that he had. He also had a sort of second career maintaining aircrafts at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, and he combined those interests to set up a fund for youth to go into skilled trades. Where does that stand now? I'm uh, one of the trustees for that particular trust, and there are a number of folks who are going to be the selection committee for young people who would like to study the trades but need financial help to do that. Because not everybody belongs in college, not everybody wants to go into aviation, but everybody needs a good job. And so because he spent, as you mentioned, so much of his time working in the trades and he recognized the lack of people available, uh, replacing the the older people that were leaving, uh, he has a heart, had a heart for the trades and wanted to figure out ways to support people who wanted to do that. Are there any other memories of Frank that you'd like to share before we go? One of the things that I noticed with Frank is that he was pushing for excellence. That's who he was, and that's w- what he was trying to do. And, and he basically pushed other people to do the same. This was an interesting guy for me because in his 90s, he remained a visionary. Uh, he was seeing a, a possibility of things, and, and you know, including this this trust that he was trying to set up that a lot of folks didn't see. But he didn't let the fact that he was aging slow him down or get in the way of doing something new and different. I can remember one time I actually got annoyed with Frank because I'm a glider flight instructor, and I took Frank on a flight uh, one time, and doggone it if uh, Frank Macon at 90 plus was making better landings than I was. It's, it's <laughs> a really good guy. He sounds like a remarkable man. Thank you so much for sharing, Mark. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Mark Dickerson is a retired Air Force colonel and president of the local chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. He helped us remember Frank Macon, one of the last original Tuskegee Airmen who died November 22nd in Colorado Springs at the age of 97. Sunday marked a somber date in Colorado history. More than 150 Arapaho and Cheyenne people, mostly women, children, and the elderly, were killed by federal troops in 1864. It's now known as the Sand Creek Massacre, but that wasn't always the case. There's now a memorial in the works to be placed outside the state capitol. We spoke with the sculptor Harvey Pratt, a descendant of Sand Creek, last week. It's of a young woman, a young woman that's on her knees, and uh, she has a left arm thrust up into the air, and she's holding a uh, empty cradle board. It really is about the women that, that suffered there. And when uh, Cheyenne women or men mourned, they cut their hair. Mm. And uh, in the old days, they used to either cut a finger off, and then they would cut their legs or their arms. And that's what this uh, statue depicts, uh, this woman holding an empty cradle board implying that she has lost her child and she has cut her little finger off at the second joint on her left hand and she's cut her hair, cut her braids off. Historian Ari Kelman writes about the changing views about what happened in his book, A Misplaced Massacre. Misplaced because for a long time it wasn't clear exactly where the massacre occurred and there wasn't acknowledgement of what really happened. Ryan spoke with him in 2013 with the, when the book was published. 
This historic site outside the town of Eads in Kiowa County marks where, as you write, gallons of blood were spilled. Why is it such a big deal that the name should include the word massacre? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, actually. Well, in some ways, it is straightforward. Uh, There were three federal inquiries into the violence at Sand Creek in 1865. All three of them found that uh, what happened there was a massacre. Having said that, there were a lot of people who were deeply invested in portraying Sand Creek as as a battle, as a glorious battle, uh, as a battle to help civilize the, the plains in Colorado, to try and make it possible for whites to settle the West, and also, uh, importantly, as a battle in the United States Civil War. And so when you've got different groups of people who have deeply held views of, about how a different event uh, might have played out very differently, uh, you end up with controversy. And that's the case here. Much more uh, Indian blood was spilled than white blood, but we should say white troops died at Sand Creek. Some two dozen uh, white soldiers were were killed at Sand Creek, which was a a, a really significant loss in the context, uh, particularly of the Indian Wars. Not a significant loss for a civil war battle, of course, where sometimes the casualties could sky into the tens of thousands. So having massacre in the name of this site, it represents something of of a first, right? Well, so this is a great question. Uh, I I spoke uh, just a couple of days ago with Alexa Roberts, who's the site superintendent now at both Ben's Old Fort and uh, at the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. Ben's Old Fort is also on the plains. That's right. It's it's located uh, relatively near Sand Creek uh, on the eastern plains of Colorado. And I said to her, uh, hey, Alexa, is it okay that I say that this is the the first unit of the national park system that labels the the actions of federal soldiers a massacre? And she pondered for a little bit and said, yeah, I think you're okay with that. So I, I'm always uh, wary of unprecedented, right? You know, we're, I'm a scholar and, and we try and be really, really careful uh, not to make mistakes about things like that. But I'm pretty sure that it's it's certainly unprecedented within the within the park service. What details about the massacre itself make it unabashedly a massacre? What stands out in your mind about that day in November of 1864 uh, from your research? Uh, the the Indian peoples who were there, the Arapahoes and Cheyennes who were camped at Sand Creek, believed unequivocally that they had made peace with white authorities in Colorado Territory. In late September of 1864, a group of peace chiefs, including Black Kettle, came to Denver and met with John Evans, the territorial governor at the time, and John Shivington, the colonel who would lead the troops at Sand Creek. Evans uh, effectively punted. He said, I don't really know what to make of, of your peace overtures. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand this over to, to Colonel Shivington. Shivington said, uh, look, if you want to make peace, you've got to go down to Fort Lyon. And if you do that, it's up to the commander at that fort whether or not he's going to protect you, whether or not you're going to be safe. The Arapahoes and Cheyennes did that. They went down to Fort Lyon. They got the all clear from the commander there, Ned Winecoop, who told them to camp on Sand Creek. Let me just say that in this book and in this interview, names are flying that are all over Denver and Colorado. (laughs) What Winecoop, Evans. These these are people that are uh, safely etched into Colorado history, but can continue the story. Well, and, and that's right. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the story is so controversial, because it, it involves so many of the founders of, of Colorado. A- at any rate, the Arapahoes and Cheyennes, having been told to go to Fort Lyon, they, they did. Uh, they were told that they should camp on Sand Creek. They, they did that. 
And so they believed they were being protected by the, by the United States flag. They, they believed that they were safe. Almost all of the evidence indicates that uh, this was a peaceful camp and that it was made up uh, largely of women, children, and the elderly. And uh, it was then the site of indiscriminate killing. What do we know about the details afterwards? What, ha- what happens of the place of a massacre in the, in the days, let's say the days afterwards? So immediately following the attack at Sand Creek, uh, Shivington's men, using the language of the day, they take trophies from the killing field. Um, they cut off fingers uh, from their victims. They scalp some of their victims. And then they camp there uh, overnight. And then they leave. Uh, meanwhile, the Arapahoes and Cheyennes who survived this ordeal come back to that area and try and gather what, what they lost. Uh, Shivington's troops burned the village there. Nevertheless, they try and recover some of their possessions. They try and recover some of their loved ones. They look for survivors. Uh, and then after that, they move as a group uh, and, and join other bands of Native peoples on, on the plains. I want to focus on the, the construction then of this uh, National Historic Site. It opened to the public in 2007, right? It did. That is 143 years after the massacre. How does it take that long? Well, first of all, look, the United States, as a general rule, isn't in the business of memorializing its mistakes. There's very, very few uh, national historic sites, national memorials that document the errors in the nation's history. Um, and so it's it's an unlikely event for the federal government to decide to memorialize. And, and it only happens in this case through happenstance. I mean, it really is a... It's a very, very odd story where a local landowner in, in Kiowa County decides that he wants to move. And he owns the, the property that most people believe in 1997 and 1998 uh, hosted the, the Sand Creek Massacre. He's, for a whole host of reasons, uh, tired of living in Kiowa County. Uh, he's had some problems with neighbors. More than that, he's exhausted by the task of, of being the steward of this land where, where people come and visit every year. Uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of people in some years come to make pilgrimages to this sacred site. So he decides he wants to sell out. And, and Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell, who at that time was uh, one of Colorado's senators, gets wind of this. And, and Senator Campbell uh, has family in the Northern Cheyenne tribe, is himself a, a member of the, the Council of 44 Chiefs uh, in the Cheyenne tribe. And he's got a very long history with Sand Creek, and he decides that it's time for the federal government to purchase this property and to take it out of private hands and and move it into the public realm. You write about all of the fears and tensions around that in Kiowa County, right? A a government taking is feared by some, and so it becomes another party at the table in the long journey to create this site. Take us there. What does it look like today? It's a really magnificent place. Um, It's an intact parcel of prairie. It looks to some people quite desolate, but to others, it's, it's actually an incredibly fertile piece of land. And the creek bed itself... It's a meandering stream. Uh, The area that's considered most sacred to the descendants of Sand Creek, that area is a a bend in the creek. And the creek bottom is covered in in cottonwood trees. The Park Service has, for the most part, left it open. 
it, it, it's an unusual memorial in that regard. Uh, and, and it's unusual because it's, it's very difficult to interpret and the process of interpreting it is ongoing, uh, but also because the killing field itself is sacred soil. It's hallowed ground. And so- You don't build a gift shop. That's exactly right. Yeah. There, you, don't, you don't build a gift shop and you also don't build, uh, you don't build interpretive trails where some 150 uh, Arapaho and Cheyenne people were killed. You mentioned uh, descendants of the victims, including uh, Senator Nighthorse Campbell, right? Um, and I'd like to have you read a passage about descendants uh, of the victims of Sand Creek. For many of the descendants, stories of the massacre were dearly held, passed from one generation to the next, a family heirloom akin to a sacred text. Across nearly a century from the start of the reservation era until relatively recently, Cheyenne and Arapaho people were discouraged, sometimes violently, from telling their Sand Creek stories. Boarding school administrators, Bureau of Indian Affairs officials, and other white authorities believed that keeping alive memories of the massacre preserved links to the past, to a traditional way of life, hindering acculturation. These stories, consequently, took on added significance because they were endangered, and thus preserved away from prying eyes. Steve Brady, for instance, learned about Sand Creek when he was a little boy. He lived in a one-room log house with his paternal grandparents, who oversaw his cultural education. When night fell, Brady often crawled into bed with his grandfather, who told, quote, creation stories, stories of the battles his parents had fought, stories of ordeals, of the massacre, of the good times, and the hard times they endured. Laird Komatsiva heard the story of Sand Creek from his father, who recounted the family's history outside, usually on camping trips away from nosy outsiders. And Norma Gorno, another member of the Northern Cheyenne Sand Creek Massacre Descendants Committee, explained that she always cried when relating her family's massacre story, knowing that her memories of Sand Creek came down to her at great cost through the generations. What's odd here, Ari, and you point to these tensions in your book, is that it's the U.S. government, it's the National Park Service that's working with the tribes to create a memorial. Uh, and all those years ago, it was the U.S. government that perpetrated this massacre. How, how does how does that play out among the descendants of the victims? Yeah, this is a it's a really really difficult disjuncture, right? Because as you say, the the federal government was ultimately responsible for the massacre. And yet it's the federal government that decides that it's going to uh, memorialize this event. For the descendants, it's uncomfortable because they've got a very long history of not working uh, especially well or effectively with federal authorities. And so when they're initially approached about creating a Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site, uh, they're thrilled at the idea of protecting the land, but they're not entirely excited about the, the partner. I think that, that what makes it uh, possible for this to happen is, first of all, that it's Senator Campbell. And the Sand Creek descendants uh, trust him. Something I found fascinating is pinpointing exactly where the massacre took place. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's, it's not all that certain when this process begins of building a historic site. You even write that the land itself in the hundred some odd years since the massacre has changed. And so points of reference... I don't know if it's trees or the direction of a creek or something. All that could have changed. Sure, sure. In 1998, when Senator Campbell decides that, that he wants to create a Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site, there's real uncertainty about where exactly this event took place. And so the Park Service decides in 1998 that it's going to launch uh, a, a massive search. It's a history mystery. In it, this is, it is indeed a history mystery. That's exactly right. And 
Uh, and the Park Service puts together uh, an interdisciplinary team. They got their best battlefield archaeologist, a man named Doug Scott, who uh, at the time was involved in uh, locating a, a number of sites of war crimes in the Balkans. And they bring him in. They bring a man named Jerry Green, a historian in, uh, a really exceptional historian of the Indian Wars. They uh, bring in a woman named Alexa Roberts, uh, who's an anthropologist who has a great deal of experience working with, with Indian peoples. And they uh, bring in the, the descendants themselves, who bring their own methods, their own way of understanding the past. The historian's team finds itself looking for the most part at documents that were produced by perpetrators at Sand Creek, documents produced by Shivington's men. And they discover what they think is, is a reasonable amount of information, but they're still somewhat flummoxed. And, and I have to tell you that, that for Jerry Green and for Doug Scott, this is a deeply frustrating moment because it doesn't make sense that Sand Creek has gone missing. This was uh, at the time a, a massive engagement more than 1,500 people fighting for their lives. And, and, and you've, presumably you've got bullets, that's right? Exactly and you've right. got... There, there, there should be thousands of bullets. There should be remnants of, of the Arapaho and Cheyenne camp, which was a big, big camp. It was, it was some 100 lodges, perhaps as many as 1,000 people camped there for a reasonable period of time. There should be a great deal of, of evidence. There should be a lot of artifacts. But then there's a, a great moment where... An archivist in the National Archives stumbles upon a, a map which is actually miscatalogued. So uh, Jerry Green looks at this map and he thinks that this is a, a might be the key to figuring out where where the site is. Uh, produced in 1868 by a soldier who mapped exactly where the Sand Creek killing field was. The archaeologists uh, go out in the field and and they're armed with metal detectors. And it's a big group of people, and it includes some of the descendants. Uh, it, it includes Park Service employees, and it includes a number of other people. And they go out, and they uh, turn up hundreds of artifacts. Uh, and, and they're the right kind of artifacts. You write, team members pulled a vast array of equipment from the ground, ordnance including bullets, arrowheads, and cannonball fragments to outfit a small army, domestic materials including skillets, kettles, knives, forks, spoons, cups, plates, bowls, and a coffee grinder to prepare a grand feast. To wrap up, Ari, can the process of memorializing Sand Creek teach us something about new memorials. There's a number of different lessons to be drawn from the story of memorializing Sand Creek. I, th I think the first of them is that it's very, very difficult to find a, a, a single story that every stakeholder is going to be able to agree upon, particularly uh, when, when one's trying to tell stories of violence. That, in fact, you've got to make room for lots of different narratives uh, within the confines of a single memorial. So in, in the case of Sand Creek, in describing what happened at Sand Creek as a massacre, and in, and in doing so quite rightly, I believe, the Park Service is really going to challenge people who visit this site. And, and the reason for that is that Sand Creek is not just a part of the Indian Wars. Uh, that's how people think of it typically, but it's also part of the United States Civil War. The soldiers who slaughtered the Arapaho and Cheyenne people at, at Sand Creek were Civil War soldiers. This happened in the context of the Civil War. Governor Evans and Colonel Shivington drummed up a great deal of anxiety in Colorado Territory by pointing to that Civil War backdrop and, and suggesting that the Arapaho and Cheyenne people uh, were working in league with the Confederacy. 
Now, as, as a general rule, we, and I would include myself in this, by the way, I, I, I teach the Civil War, and we tend to think of the Civil War as a good war. Um, and, and there are very good reasons why we think of it in that way. It was a war of liberation. It's the moment when the United States redeems itself in, in blood of the sin of slavery. And indeed, uh, it, it's a story that, that has its own Christ figure. President Lincoln dies so that the United States might live. And most of us learn this in fifth or sixth or seventh grade social studies. By calling Sand Creek a massacre, by, by labeling this place the Sand Creek uh, Massacre National Historic Site, the Park Service is going to challenge visitors to think about what really is an irredeemable tragedy. And so for visitors who are coming to the site, they're going to be confronted with a story that's very, very difficult to place within their understanding of history. Now, I would suggest that I think that's the absolute best kind of memorial. I think that memorials are, are absolutely at their best when they are shot through with the ironies of American history. Ari, thank you for being with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Ari Kelman is the author of A Misplaced Massacre, Struggling Over the Memory of Sand Creek. Ryan Warner spoke with him in 2013 when the book was published. Sunday marked the 156th anniversary of the killing of Arapaho and Cheyenne people, mostly women, children, and the elderly, at the hands of federal soldiers. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. CPR News.